0: Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is uh, August 31st and uh, I'm here with Tammy and Andy. It's been a pretty eventful week in America. I don't know about the rest of the world because I think America has been so eventful that I've stopped paying attention to (laughs) the rest of the world. Um, Andy, Tammy, I wanted to ask you something at the top because you're both professors now, both academics. And I've been seeing a lot of stuff uh, around strikes and around uh, sort of moments and actions of solidarity with Black Lives Matter. I have no idea what this is, so I just, Andy, tell me about this.
1: Yeah, so I think Tammy and I both found out about it uh, today for the first time that um, there's been an online campaign dating back to last Wednesday when the NBA had their, you know, their boycott or strike, whatever you want to call it. Where some academics on Twitter were saying, you know, they would also be interested in a strike in solidarity with uh, professional athletes. And I think it's being led. I apologize. I don't know their names, but there's a woman from Penn. I think her name is Professor B on Twitter and a man from a school in Iowa who's in history. Um, and they are now the ones. Uh, yeah, we could have done research ahead of time. Coastal oh,
2: elites. Um, yeah,
1: coastal <laughs> elites in Iowa. Uh, who he goes by tattooed prof. So they have prof in their <laughs> Twitter handles. Um, they're leading this event on September eighth to 9th. So it's two days. It's kind of a scheduled event. And instead of teaching like your normal classes, I guess they want. Uh, well, you know, it's up to it's up to professors. They could just not do their classes uh they could also redirect their classes to this kind of teaching on a youtube channel and they're trying to set that up with volunteers who would teach like 10 minute chunks of materials related to um i guess racial justice in in the broad sense right history contemporaries whatever um so yeah and but it was explicitly linked to uh, the NBA event last week. And Tammy, you also sent us something. I'm not sure if that was an academic thing, but it was something else related to like in solidarity with the professional athletes, right?
2: Yeah, it was like a union sign-on to yeah. support Yeah, Black Lives Matter, but but specifically noting all of the, the major um, yeah. sports teams.
1: Was there like an event or a thing they were planning?
2: No, well, it was just a solidarity statement. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Are, are there things like, what, how long is this thing going to go? Like, what, What's the plan?
1: For the Scholar Strike, I think it's two days. And uh, I think the plan now is just, you know, here's a YouTube channel. And it's all, I guess, because everyone's doing remote anyway. Or, you know, variations yeah. of remote teaching. Uh, they might just do that. Which I guess makes, you know, it makes the kind of
0: opportunity cost less if
1: people are already just kind of tuning online anyway. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, is this something that, that uh, universities are going to necessarily... Get in the way of, or I don't know. I feel like they're like the NBA owners. They like they
1: they know that <laughs> you can't actually win that PR battle, and it's just it's basically just one day of classes uh, anyway, right? Yeah. And it's it's kind mm-hmm. of it's it's scheduled, it's you know, it's pre uh, what's the word like it's it has an end date built right. into it, yeah. so it's not like striking indefinitely for higher wages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, and this also made me kind of wonder. You know, we'll, we might talk about this later, like why the the usage of the word strike, mm-hmm. because this was also a controversy with the NBA itself. Like, yeah. what do we call this? A lot of people were calling it a strike. Totally. Um, and, you know, I think technically it was a strike. Right. But a lot of the participants and the kind of the inside journalists who talk to the players all the time, they were saying, like, eh, it's not a strike because mm-hmm. it wasn't like mm-hmm. grievances against their employer. And it wasn't, you know, aimed at, you know, higher wages or, you know. Better working conditions. So,
2: so. Yeah, I've been thinking about this because the American Federation of Teachers and other public school teachers around the country have been mobilizing and they essentially have strike authorization for this year with the return to school. And we'll see if they utilize it. But, you know, building on all of the waves of teacher strikes over the past few years, I think there's a lot of power there. Whereas with universities, I'm just not seeing it. And I mean, you know, most there's only like one or two public private universities in the country that have the right to have a union otherwise the unions are located only in the public universities and they're yeah. somewhat fractured i think also and then you add on top of that at the at the elite faculty level that insecurity and then yeah. at the sort of janitorial and food service level, there's so much like subcontracting and there's just, yeah. So I feel like there's, it's just a really hard place to organize. And there've been so many wonderful like adjunct and grad student campaigns, right? but I don't think obviously that's not where the power lies for the COVID piece. So I don't, I don't know. I'm, I spoke with um somebody who's organizing here, who's the president of the faculty union at the University of Montana, and she's a, kind of a radical Marxist librarian. Really <laughs> <True>. <laughs> And um, you know, she was saying that there's so much anxiety, but there's a yeah, a little bit of a culture of fear, and just there have been mm-hmm. a bunch of layoffs here too. Yeah, so people are just completely freaked out, even though they're nervous about all the in-person teaching we're doing.
0: I covered the the uh, teacher strike in Oklahoma and Kentucky,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: the main point of leverage that teacher strikes had at that point was that their pay was so bad and that they hadn't been gotten a raise in like 10 years, right? So in Oklahoma, I think it was 10 or 11 years they hadn't gotten a raise. But the real point of leverage is that if they go on strike, then people have to stay at home with their kids. Absolutely. Right? And so they lose child care. And, uh, and there's also like a lot of emotional attachment, I think, that people never actually, they don't they don't ever follow through with it in terms of legislation or raises for teachers, but it at least makes them not tell, you know, not fire a bunch of teachers at once because everyone, you know, the thing that everyone says like, Oh, teachers deserve to be paid more or something like that. But, um, I just don't think that exists for university. I
2: think it's much harder.
0: Employees were just like, Oh, well you're just like a, you know, you shouldn't have studied art history then. Right. <laughs>
2: Basically, yeah. like, yeah. 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 Which is really messed up because if you at the community college level or the pub, at many public universities, we're talking about a super working class student population, but yeah. also to some extent a working class, like, professorial population. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, okay. So if you're tenured, you more or less feel secure. If you're untenured, though, there's like 30 people who are yeah. willing to take your job tomorrow if your university just arbitrarily decides not to, you know, continue with you. So mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. the fear for untenured. And there has been talk about yeah. why don't tenured professors stick their neck out more for untenured professors. Yeah. Right. Cause they're the ones with all the power. And uh, you know, this has led to fights online fights, uh, public fights mm. within like the history discipline. I know probably every other discipline. And I don't know, I think a tenured professor would say like, well, what do you expect us to do? Like we, it's, not, it's out of our hands all we we have tenure but we don't we aren't the university administration we aren't the hr department we aren't the president of the university all we can do is um what, what has been like for in history for instance what what's been going on is they've been promoting promoting this thing called alt ac right mm-hmm. alternative academia which is like a you know it's it's like well you could like you know you could be a consultant um uh, and oh if you don't get a, a tenure track job and rightfully a lot of people are like don't tell me that <laughs> like like yeah, either help us get like a either help help us with the labor situation or you know don't 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 like talk down to us like we're idiots uh, that's so weird yeah that's bizarre but well, I think it's... I mean it is you know like don't get me wrong I would love to like you know I would love to blame the tenured senior professors <laughs> but I, I I do kind of see their point like power in the university has been taken out of the hands of all the professors and it is in the hands of administrators and um, you know bureaucrats.
2: I yeah. mean, sort of, but also the most pe- famous people at universities are tenured professors. They're not like the presidents and stuff. So, in terms of political leverage, as opposed to like you know factual leverage, I think they still hold that power.
1: If they are not an administrator, though, I mean, they the administrators have the final say, and administrators are connected to people outside the university. Did you see that thing uh, that Michigan? I think I could say this Michigan really pushed for, you know, have an open campus uh, and it was revealed like one of their biggest donors um, is like uh, owns like, I don't know, like a huge chunk of Ann Arbor uh, is a, a huge, a landlord in all of Ann Arbor basically. Uh-huh. So he or she would lose a ton of money if students don't go, don't come back and rent their right. apartments. Wow! And that person was like, had sway over Michigan's decision whether or not to come back to campus. So, you know,
0: yeah at some level if you're a professor like
1: that's out that's over your head
0: um so our first topic today (laughs) is uh it's not a funny topic at all it is uh today Donald Trump went to Kenosha I think or maybe he didn't actually go but he gave a press conference in which he said uh this is from a tweet from Daniel Dale when asked about Kyle Rittenhouse Kyle Rittenhouse for those who don't know is the 17 year old kid who killed two people in kenosha um he he's the supporter accused of murder trump says he's looking into it but adds that was an interesting situation he was trying to get away and you know there was i think trump did say more was basically like well they were trying to hurt the kid yeah and essentially saying that the kid was acting in self-defense Yeah. Um, and this caps, uh, you know, this came two days or two nights after somebody in Portland was killed. Right. Um, the person right. in Portland was killed was part of Patriot Prayer, which is a, you know, it's an organization that I don't know how to describe, but, you know, I don't I don't like using the term alt right, but it's a it's a right wing organization mm-hmm. that tries to stir up shit in Portland. And um, they've been fighting with uh, whatever you want to call the other side, Antifa or whatever anarchists for the past four years. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that no one has gotten killed on either side up to this point, right, um, between Patriot Prayer and that group. But it finally did happen. And uh, it's, I don't know, a lot of people are saying this is like the start of a civil war. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think about that, Terry? What do you think?
2: Oh, my gosh. I can't really gauge. I mean, my initial reaction was alarm at the kind of blaming of Antifa because I felt like we had kind of rewinded again to a point where Antifa was a kind of coherent mass that we could blame and put into a conflict with Patriot Prayer. I mean, it is true, of course, that the left and right have been in severe physical conflict in Portland, as you've said, for many years. So um, I don't know. I was following a bunch of activists today and it seemed like the portland police were out in force um in a way that was kind of echoing the initial days of the national guard so that really alarmed me i think i was more concerned with that
0: oh ppb you mean last night at the protest yeah Yeah, i saw some of that too
2: so i don't know Uh, what do you guys think
0: anybody think are we at civil war um yeah,
1: I mean, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, the the big left-wing talking point was there is no such thing as Antifa. It's right. a figment of the imagination of, you know, Fox News. And now this uh, gives substance to that accusation that there is this shadowy organization called Antifa with weapons. So that's that's not great. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know. When I was reading more about what was going on and I was kind of looking at, like, who are these people? Like, who is, who is the person that the shooter in uh, Kenosha uh, and then who were the people who got shot it just kind of made me sad because all those people are pretty much like working class and they just like wound up on different sides of this culture war
0: yeah well i don't know if like i don't know if they're i don't know if the people in patriot prayer are yeah i don't know about them you know, but i'm talking about you know, driving the guy pretty goes, expensive trucks and stuff like that yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean i don't know i mean i think that like, class aside for this one, I mean, although, Andy, I'm not saying that, you, that you're wrong about this, but I think people, like, my initial reaction was that this Portland thing is pretty scary because, it, Tammy, like you said, like, I think that people on the left, especially journalists, need to be a little bit more honest about some of this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. there are people, about 200 of them to 500 of them, show up every single time they fight Patriot Prayer. Mm-hmm. They all dress in black, you know, they all they're all there to fight. They go fight on the overpasses or whatever. It happens all the time. I've been to two of them. I've seen it with my own eyes. You know, like something exists. I don't know what you want to call it, but they do hold up signs saying Antifa. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. They do form in things called Black Bloc that go around causing property damage. Now, like that I say all that like completely valueless. Like I don't have a judgment about it. And I generally am of the mind that, like, you know, these are protesters, they're showing up, and I think that protest is good right and i think yeah. that generally their intentions are good like they they think that having patriot prayer enter the city of portland is a recruiting tactic now my sense would just be that look the thing that makes patriot prayer something that i have to fly to portland to cover for a fucking hbo show or whatever is <laughs> because you guys keep showing up and fighting them you know otherwise it's like you know yeah. it's like six dudes
2: i mean i don't know about the civil war piece but i definitely think that the Patriot prayer thing taps into a larger population and anxiety that exists in the Pacific Northwest. Um, You know, we've talked a little bit about the kind of like frontier mentality, the bun Clive and Bundy, that kind of thing. But like, if you look at the reporting of somebody like our friend Leah Sotilli, like these are like very deep, actually fairly large networks. They don't all have the same name, but I think to that extent when, you know, Antifa or anarchists or gutter punk kids like go out in what they feel like is battle against Patriot pair, they're also fighting a larger thing in their community, in their state. I think, I mean, the reason I was keeping an eye on the Portland police is because I think we have to also, as people on the left, think about like what this will represent in certain people's imagination and in the imagination of people in power. And um, I'm concerned about what law enforcement will do with this murder. Oh yeah, in Portland. You in know Portland, yeah. yeah, because our concern really is should always mostly be about state violence, you know. And so that's kind of what I'm keeping an eye on. Like, we we could talk about like two militias or two forces in isolation, but really we need to talk about yeah, you know, what, how the power of the state will be exercised under under Trump.
1: But the Portland mayor so far has been very like equivocal. Like he's like he's just trying yeah. not to take a stand, which indicates that he's not sure what's popular. Like if it's popular or if it'd be unpopular to uh, kind of clamp down on the BLM protests. Right. Sure. But maybe he's just waiting to see what public opinion is like. Um, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I don't know, but I don't know I mean, if. Yeah. He Blame the Trump, two, Trump, right? Say what? Yeah. He, he blamed, blamed Trump. Trump. He's he blamed Trump. He condemns candidate. all violence on all sides, yeah. but he's not willing to say like this person, this side was wrong. Right. He doesn't want to, because he knows, he knows like the sentiment of the city isn't obviously with the left.
0: Yeah, what a shitty that job! Makes sense. For that <laughs> yeah. I would hate to be the mayor of Portland. Yeah, <laughs> right but now
2: he's also kind of shitty. You know, like oh, no, he a sucks.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. He sucks, but like uh, <laughs> but, I know. But I would like if I was in that job right now, I would I would not suck for the same reasons that he sucked. But I would probably <laughs> half of Portland might be burned down right now if I was mayor. I'd be fine, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> All protesters are good protesters as long as they show up. It's fine, guys. Yeah. It's just a little property damage. It's fine, you know. Uh, it's fine. it's just a donut shop. We got a lot of donut shops around here. I don't want to block down the street. Oh, it's it's just natural hot chicken. You know, there's seven natural hot chicken places in Portland for some reason. The J. <laughs>
2: commune got a lot grimmer. Yeah.
0: I'd be like, I'm sorry, but that's that was an Asian restaurant where the main chef was white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, the, yeah. Like, that Thai restaurant. Yeah, the appropriation. Th- well, yeah, that place is actually pretty good. That Pac Pak, I've it. heard it's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, Do you like it? okay. yeah. it's really good. Yeah. I'm not mad at Pock Pak, but. I <laughs> The 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 last thing that I wanted to talk about here, outside of like whether or not this is going to lead to civil war, is that like, um, I mean, like, what does it mean then for? Because this is a this is a departure, right? It is. It seems like we're in a new space in terms of protests in America that we haven't been since maybe the late '60s, and there's a lot of stuff that comes out as saying like, oh well, this is just going to be like you know the people's temple again, right? Like so like. Hmm. Uh, Um, And for those who don't know, like Jim Jones was in San Francisco. He had a, you know, he had what was an admirably multiracial, multi-ethnic, cross-class solidarity movement going on. You know, they did amazing things. Like they, you know, they were real big supporters of the early Third World Liberation Front, for example. And, you know, then they went and did Jonestown, right? And so there's a lot of fear about this type of stuff. Like uh, that, that, we're going to have increasingly sectarian and violent splinter groups that come out of black lives matter and you know look i i think my thoughts on this are probably going to be very obvious but to play devil's advocate a little bit here right like it does seem like the leaderlessness of this the fact that there is no unifying voice the fact that all these people are being radicalized now like all these young people in portland are radicalized, right? They've been punched and tear gas and tackled by cops now for like 80 straight days, uh, and that their politics are going to get more interesting as this moment of violence has happened. Like, like, first of all, like let's say let's take outside whether we think it's good or bad, right? Like, is it? Do you think this can lead to more sort of radical sex everywhere? Not sex, yeah. sex, sex. sex, sex. sex. More sex <laughs> more
2: Gosh, I haven't been reading that much about that kind of anxiety. I mean, I, I feel more afraid in the other direction that all of this is kind of gonna peter yeah. out, and here we go into November. Um, maybe I need to be reading more of the Reddit threads that you're on, Jay. But
0: um, no, it's all from Twitter. <laughs>
2: okay. Yeah, I, I don't. No, I'm. I don't. I don't think that is going to be the trajectory.
0: Okay, Andy. What about? I mean, you? are you
1: are you thinking like cultish sect like Jonestown? Like, what are you? What are these radical sect? Sects? I like
0: the Symbionese uh, Liberation Army. Like all these things that happened in the late sixties, early seventies.
1: Um, I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea what you, what what do you what do you think
0: uh, I don't know I think there's probably a good chance that we see a lot of those things because they already exist in the right right yeah like something like patriot prayer is exactly that yeah. right yeah. there's a small sectarian group organized around a leader whose name is Joey Gibson, and uh they have yeah. a whole spiritual mentality like they're you know they're very christian quote unquote right or they say they're very christian um And they just go around starting trouble all the time. Right. And they have all these proud boys that are with them. Right. And right now, all these things, the only thing I will say is they mostly exist in Portland, right? They don't (laughs) there's like, 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 I could walk around like Berkeley, California, Oakland, San Francisco for like three days. And I don't think I would, you know, and I could just be screaming out, are any of you proud boys, you know, and I don't think (laughs) I would find a single person but in Portland you might. Right. Um, I think that this is a very specific Portland thing. And I think that one of my theories about this is, and this is, mostly happens because I don't watch television or movies at all. And that I've trying to be like, my friends have been talking about shows. They're like, did you watch Lovecraft country or something like that? And I was like, no, I don't watch television. And they're like, well, what do you do? And it's like, well, I spend a lot of time with my kid at night, but there's still time where I don't do anything where other people watch television. And I was trying to figure out what I actually do during that time. And I was like, okay, so part of what I do is I watch people play video games for about 20 minutes a night, which is like mind-numbingly stupid. <laughs> like, but, you're one of the
1: eSports? <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, but the other, <laughs> the other hour or so, I basically watch where the protests are, right? I watch live streams, and it basically has become a television show. And I think that that's true for a lot of people, that they experience these things as entertainment almost. And that, look, for me, it's not entertainment. It's something that I follow because I've reported on it in the past. And because I'm interested in it, but I will admit that, you know, I take it in as a television show in the same way that everybody else does. You watch, you're watching live streams, you're watching clips of it. And I think that when you are taking a very specific situation and you're broadcasting it every single night, like in Portland, like my friends who live in other parts of Portland, like they, they say, like sometimes we hear a police helicopter, but that's about it. You know, Mm -hmm. like they're totally oblivious to stuff happening, except, when they look at the same things that I'm looking at, they look at Twitter or whatever, and they see the video clips coming out. I think it makes it seem much more universal than it is, right? And I don't think that here or in New York City or in Philadelphia that, that things are as, like, ossified into strange sectarian groups as they are in Portland. Like I said, this fight between Patriot Prayer and Antifa has been going on for a long time. You know, it's not like a new thing. Like it's been happening for like three or four years now, and it happens all the time. They fight all the time. Is, is, and,
1: is Patriot is, Prayer Portland specific?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the okay. guy lives in Vancouver, Washington, okay. and so he just drives over. And um, I don't know. I, I think that that's sort of the danger of having everything being filmed and having everything be out there every, all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just like it becomes a TV show, and you feel like the TV show is every American city even though what happens in Kenosha is very different than what is happening in Portland. Yeah. Um, what happened in Kenosha is like a real uprising and similar to what happened in Ferguson where people are just pissed off and they go out, yeah. you know, and they protest. The Portland thing is very specific. And I don't, I don't know how I feel about the Portland thing. I know how I feel about the Kenosha thing. Like I think it is a righteous thing to go out and protest in those moments. Oh, but I like, see. the Portland thing is like, it's its own weird thing. And I just think too many people are are drawing too many conclusions from Portland without just being like, yeah, it's just, you know, like a lot of this stuff is just Portland specific. Does that make sense?
2: Jay, I think like your citation of that video evidence makes me more skeptical of my opinion, which was that we're not leading to anything crazy. But I do think, you know, to the extent that this is broadcast and rebroadcast and it circulates on like Boogaloo groups and other sorts of groups all over the country, there could be. There is a danger in the imagination around it
0: yeah yeah no i I think there is reason to be worried i just yeah. don't I just don't think we're at that point right now, and like yeah. you know like I, don't, I don't we haven't think so. we're not having like a Reichstag fire, no. you know we haven't had crystal knocked, and I think <laughs> that there are reasons to be worried that that could come down the line, but I think that we should be a little bit proportionate in the response right now, which is that um. You know a lot of people have been killed at these protests and most of the people who have been killed are you know protesters yes people have been shot people have lost eye, and people have been really badly hurt and all the people have been badly hurt are protesters right so taking this one thing and saying this is like a turning point i think is a little bit much
2: yeah i don't i don't see that
1: yeah
0: um although i don't know now everyone's (laughs) afraid so Maybe, maybe perception is reality all right our second topic to talk about today is the NBA and what the NBA is doing. Right now, as we are talking, I think the Rockets are playing the, the OKC, Thunder. yeah. Yeah. Um, and,
2: uh, <laughs> How do you guys keep up with I mean, all this mean,
0: This is our former
1: Seattle team, by the way. So. Yeah, right,
0: that's yeah. right. I know
2: that
0: uh, Clay Bennett stole them, and now they're uh, probably going to lose in six to the – to the uh, thunder but you know if i assume that everybody who listens to this podcast knows what happened which is that last wednesday the milwaukee Bucks, led by george hill who is you know their backup point guard but is an nba veteran they decided to not play their game against the orlando magic and the orlando magic didn't really know that this was happening they took the floor (laughs) miami the milwaukee Bucks are saying well we'll just take a forfeit and the orlando magic I think rightfully. Yeah. We're just like, what the fuck, guys? You know, like, you're making (laughs) us seem like the ones that we're supporting, like, this white, you know, white supremacy. Yeah. And so then this led to this huge (laughs) behind-the-scenes fight, which has been reported hilariously by the NBA state media, which, you know, I (laughs) I I use the term. NBA Pravda. Intentionally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's state media, you know, that protects LeBron James. Like they have come out <laughs> and, and just put out all sorts of hilariously implausible <laughs> to what happened. But as far as I can tell, this is what happened: is that everyone got kind of mad at the Bucks, and I, you know, what I understand why they're mad at the Bucks, right? But in the Bucks' defense, I think what they were thinking was that, look, if we take this to LeBron and we take it to Chris Paul, who is the head of the players' union they're going to say, no, we're not, we're not striking because like, those are the guys who set up this bubble thing with the messaging, right? Like they were the ones who were saying, no, we have our platforms. We should use our platforms. And for the box to say, we're sitting out this game is essentially implicitly saying, fuck these platforms. These don't matter. And this followed about two days of players really being frustrated. And, you know, Jalen Brown said something about it. Fred Van Vliet, who is really a great player for the Toronto Raptors said something about it. Um, a lot of players had come out and basically said, I don't know what we're doing here. You know, like, I want to go out and protest is what Jalen Brown said. And so that tension boiled over that night. And there's a big meeting. And in the meeting, like LeBron and the Lakers and the Clippers walked out, quote unquote, mm. they started out of the meeting. And the idea that was reported out by like the state media was essentially, <laughs> the Clippers and Lakers were actually more woke than everybody else, you know? Yeah. And that that they were the ones willing to actually give up their seasons and everybody else was capitulating which is bullshit you know absolute bullshit like uh <laughs> <the difference laughs> the so we're just dark. mad that like where the wh- how the bucks had put the the situation that the bucks had put them in and lebron specifically was mad because he was just like look we did all this stuff and we're trying to do this while playing our season H- why did you do this on your own which i actually think in the you know there is a players' union you yeah know? for sure like, it's a fair question um but that was basically it like I think that i I've tried to explain it to like to people who don't know anything about basketball yeah and I think I just did a good job right there compared to the other times I did I think that's accurate <laughs> and I will and I don't obviously I'm not an NBA reporter or journalist anymore but look i've talked to people behind the scenes who know things and this is generally what i think happened so do you and- think
1: my my the only the only thing that was a question mark for me is do you think the bucks actually wanted to to start shit because my from what i had read um it was like george hill and sterling brown they just like didn't they, they just didn't feel like they wanted to play the game and then Giannis is like you know we got your back if you sit out then we'll all mm-hmm. sit out and they just know they're so much better than the Orlando Magic, that they could forfeit the game, take forty-eight yeah. hours of rest, and still you know beat them like they eventually did. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like a so it like a wildcat strike where they were like, we don't want to tell the leadership, we just want we want to organize this by ourselves. Like, yeah. we're like yeah.
0: Yeah. No, uh, I don't think it was right. Yeah. So I think it was. Uh, I, I I Sterling Brown for for was attacked by the Milwaukee police, right? He was dazed and had a a knee on his neck. Like, so for him, this was much, this was like as personal as it gets. Yeah. George Hill is a longtime veteran of the league. And I think he got really frustrated with the way that the, you know, like, look, you're wearing a Nike shirt that says Black Lives Matter on it. You're all kneeling together you're giving these statements before and of course it's fucking bullshit you know and the players the players know this yeah you know They know, they know that like that that this doesn't mean anything they watch the same shit we do right they see people getting tear gassed they see these scenes of police brutality they're 23 to 27 some of them are like 31 year old 31 years old they're younger than any of us yeah you know they're almost all black of course, they're going to feel like you know, like what are we doing here? Like we're stuck in this bubble. We're playing this game, and yeah. you know, like our brothers and sisters are out there getting tear gas and brutalized by the cops and killed. You know, mm-hmm. and like you know, for them, I think it was, I think it was a very earnest, "What are we going to do about it? We can't do this,"
3: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that that you know, obviously got squashed in the way that it was always going to get squashed because uh, <laughs> because yeah. like. You know LeBron is essentially, and you know he's not, but like he his his incentives align with ownership for sure.
1: You, you also left out the part where LeBron spoke to uh, obama
2: yeah i was gonna just say you guys <laughs> need to recap that part that's some craziness so
0: that night after lebron stormed out of the out of the uh out of the meeting apparently he called obama who said hey uh you know you guys should go play again which led to some of the funniest twitter jokes i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> obama, oh, just really? wants these, obama just wants to watch these games which i would not, <laughs> <laughs> I would not really ask him honestly um, but yeah, like it was not, you know, I don't think this is the stirring. I don't know. I I, I wrote about it, um, and Annie, you you did you did like an exchange about it. You wrote about it. Yeah. Like, well, what do you think about all this? Like, um, I try and I want to be as like positive as possible, but yeah, my cynicism comes from how much I know about NBA marketing and NBA power. Yeah,
1: <laughs> which you should definitely. You know, lean into on this episode. I also want to hear what Tammy's objections were. She told me she has some disagreements. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think the more you write about it, by the end of it, I was just like, yeah, like I think like everyone, they want to look at the silver lining, pull the good out of this. It was pretty remarkable that George Hill and Sterling Brown, it just starts with two individual players, kind of unintentionally led to a strike that was not only the, the entire NBA, but also the WNBA, Major League Baseball, uh, Naomi Osaka, I don't know if anyone else, you know, boycotted. And obviously, we just talked about people in not in sports are talking about being inspired by all this. Um, yeah. So, that itself is like, you know, we could talk about how it was like clumsy or ham fisted or this wasn't their original intention, but it's still kind of remarkable.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that does kind of tell you there's some interesting,
0: you know, people, if, like, people hopefully paid attention to that. The players have not refused to play a game since like 1971, and that was a preseason game. What game right? was that? I don't even know that.
2: Yeah, what, I don't yeah. remember. It was
0: but like like collective bargaining was, or something? No, no, no. It was like something else. But it was like it been 1971 since. And they famously
1: the threatened not to play one of the All Star games in the 60s.
0: Yeah, and they, they they threatened to not play the game after Dar- Donald Sterling was right found out but mm-hmm. what they did instead is they like turned their warm-ups inside out and yeah. threw them on the middle of the court which you know i look i i want to be i i want to point out really clearly that like i really sympathize with the players like yeah. they're in a difficult position and i think that for george helen for sterling brown and for the their teammates to decide to do this as an act of unprecedented civil disobedience and and uh and dissent, right? Like, there's yeah. no, there's no getting around that. The problem is that, like, you know, and I don't want to get too like Foucauldian about this, but like, when you're in a literal bubble, right, and the bubble is, yeah, this designed to put out messaging that sounds like the messaging that you want to put out, right? But it is obviously not. It is very difficult to make an argument that, like, you know, that you <laughs> that that one type of descent is real and the other one isn't, isn't real. Right. Like it's really hard. Like it's always going to be encapsulated and swallowed up by the messaging machines that are built up around it. And so um, I don't know, like I I just don't know how, what else they were supposed to do. I mean,
1: I (laughs) I think it's, I think it was like a, like you said, like it was unprecedented for this to happen, for these games to stop and for it to like within an hour or two echo completely uncoordinated, right. To, the WNBA and Major League Baseball and everyone else. So that's that's I don't know if that's more than purely symbolic but it's it's something. Uh and what I'm curious about though is like obviously I'm like you know I'm cynical as well um uh, and what what I was kind of trying to figure out was like this interesting thing that was happening where the people who are commenting on it were trying to make it into this really heroic thing. And Wednesday night, especially when they had these reports that the season is on the line and LeBron has walked out of the meeting and everything that like hanged in the balance for tomorrow morning. There were all these like crazy fantasies happening on Mm. Twitter about how maybe they could get like Betsy DeVos to like divest her and her like control over the Orlando magic or something. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And like, like people were running with this and they were like trying to dunk on Chris Mannix, like Chris Mannix from SI had said like, what can the owners do? Which, it's like kind of a fair point, right? And people were like, stupid Chris Mannix, don't you know how rich and powerful all these owners are? Like, of course we know that, but like, do we actually think, again, this isn't to dunk on the players, but it's sort of like, yeah. what are our expectations for just normal individuals to put their livelihood on the line for a well, they're not impossible normal
0: plan? Yeah. Say, they're what? not a normal individual. Well, they're sure, individual but player. their
1: political right. view, they have, but it's, i I bet a lot of them probably are, have kind of like, Leftist political views, but would never say it. Right. And like they wouldn't, no one has said defund or even like mentioned uh, defund. Right. Which is, yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't think that any NBA players have like leftist politics. Maybe a few do. You know, I think, Kuzma, most of them, uh, <laughs> I think the, the vast majority of them are probably, you know, just center, center left. Damn. Yeah. yeah. They're, so like, they're like, well. Spend their entire lives playing basketball, sure. but they have a specific interest in Black Lives Matter because the majority of them are black, and like I said, they're young and they're you know they're they're watching these things and they're you know they're they're becoming they're a lot of them are in the process of of forming their political right. beliefs and this is a huge radicalizing moment for them and they want to go out and do something. Right. But- I, I think that that the, um, I just don't quite. I do think that there was a potential for them to get these owners to do something. I just don't think that there was a potential for them to do something as long as the Players Association was led by the most famous players in the league, right? And this sure. has always been the problem with the Players Association in the NBA, which is that it's led by people like Chris Paul, or it's led by, you know, like, it's basically shadow led by LeBron. Yeah. And those players have the most incentive in keeping the things going, yeah. right? And those players have the most ties with something like Nike, obviously, yeah. right? And so, like their perspective is always going to be that we can do this through the league and we can do this through Nike. Yeah.
2: yeah. And well, so, in, like
0: that's always going to get that's always going to be the outcome.
2: In labor, so we call that business unionism, right?
0: Yeah. Where,
2: yeah. Right. Yeah. Your your union is really just always cooperating with management to get money and.
1: Right, because yeah. they they see their best interest is the interest of the of right. employers, right?
2: Yeah. So it's like it's a joint capital project in yeah. a sense, and, which you know, I mean,
1: but- and there's, like, there's no reason to expect it to be anything other than that, right? None of these players were, like, want to, like, burn down their ownership or, you know, And but it seemed like there were, you know, just, I'm sorry, I'll just stop. But, like, I just yeah, understand, I don't understand, like, why people... I
0: like people... Yeah, I, I agree with you in general, though. I think that it's hard. But that was really,
1: the majority like... of the people who followed the NBA. And I guess this kind of gets mm-hmm. to what you were saying about, you know, white fans...
0: I don't think it's the majority of the people who follow the NBA Andy. Like I think that the majority of the people that who follow the nba NBA like have no real opinion about like, okay, okay. Covered, the, not, yeah, the majority, the people majority, the NBA. majority of people who covered the majority of Marxist NBA fans
1: were, no, were, we're, just, we're just I'm just talking about like the people like the bloggers yeah. on Twitter.
2: No, I actually think yeah I think you're hitting on something because I don't know really anything yeah, about the NBA but I know a fair amount of labor stuff and Labor reporters were super excited, yeah, like in a yeah. way that I haven't seen in quite a while, and I think there's something really going on. And I, you touch on this in in your comments in N plus one, Andy, but the, the like obviously kind of spectacular nature, the like obviously performative nature of this, yeah, at this particular moment, there's something that people needed that they saw in this and really wanted. And yeah. I think yeah. that to me was so touching, actually. Like, I disagreed with a lot of it. I don't actually think this is a wild cat strike. I I think this is like a, a good protest. It is a work stoppage of a sort, but, right. you know, I think the claims were inflated. That yeah, said, yeah, yeah. like, I was so happy that people were happy.
0: Right. Why, why well, do you, yeah? In, in their defense, right? I think that there's a lot of misinformation coming out at the beginning because the NBA media is like uh, basically a state run organization.
2: <laughs> I like, that we yeah. keep putting.
0: Yeah. Like I, I, I've, do you want to name names, or you want to keep your no, friends? Been, no, there's no reason to name names. But like, I've been on the bad side of this, where like I did reporting on the NBA and their labor situation, and the way that they try and bully and intimidate reporters who yeah. say anything about this stuff is like shameful. Mm-hmm. And I've never encountered anything like it in my entire reporting career. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's easier to talk to the cops and get an honest answer than it is to talk to the NBA about this stuff. Right, and they like the reporters that they know are going to be sympathetic to their message and they give them all the scoops. Right. And so then those those reporters end up being the big time reporters. Those reporters are completely aligned. Their their incentives are aligned completely with the league. For sure. Does it by turning all of reporting about the NBA into a transactional thing? So that what matters is that like this reporter got that, like the, you know, like the backup point guard just got a contract extension from the Indiana Pacers like who really gives a shit, you know? But the NBA media has been hoodwinked into believing that this stuff matters. Yeah, and what it's done is it's essentially made it state media. Yeah, it's
2: worse it's than the, worse. the White House access journalism in some ways. It's
0: worse. It's worse because at least you know, like they're they're. I, I'm not saying that all NBA reporters are like this, but the majority of them are, and they all know it. You know, so yeah. I'm not saying anything controversial here. But like they, uh, you know, they were. The, the story that came out was that essentially that, like, the box had decided to stop playing, that the NBA players were on were boycotting, which was a word that was used, yeah. and then it turned into a strike, and then later that night it was like, well, the two biggest teams in the NBA, the LA Clippers and the LA Lakers, have decided to quit the season. Like, that was the message yeah. that was coming out. It was all bullshit, you know? And so, of course, people thought that basically the players had decided like, we're going to leave and we're going to drive up to Kenosha. <laughs> <laughs> and we're Occupy out. the and,
2: police department. Yeah, we're going to just like, stand in
0: a picket line with, 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 our, with our comrades. Like, yeah. that's, what, that's what they thought. Okay. And I don't blame them for thinking that. But, but like, the reporters or the fans? I don't blame the I don't blame re- labor reporters who don't know oh, like the the labor in- reporters yeah okay of of, of how yeah bullshit you're saying the state
2: and- apparatus yeah. acted quickly and everyone took the bait
0: <laughs> yeah 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 they, but they acted quick I don't think that they even wanted to necessarily <laughs> yeah. Be like, yeah let's 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 let all the like you know old like <laughs> like international workers of the world people think- like <laughs> rejoice I think that they were just taking sure. essentially what was uh put out to them and what was given to them and basically reporting it as a press release and you know the LeBron thing and the Lakers thing like you know I'm saying like well LeBron says you know like he's gonna one-up them and he like the season's over like it was always bullshit and if you read between the lines of the more experienced reporters like you could kind of like do it you could see the little winks that they do being like yeah you know like nothing is finalized yet and I'm like Uh... yeah it's fake fake, you know LeBron just got mad and the other guys got mad at him. And so he just stormed out of there, yeah. you know? And, um, and then there was just, I don't, yeah, sorry.
2: Well, can we rewind yeah. a second to the yeah. moment before the bubble where, was it only Kyrie Irving who was like, this is bullshit. Like was what, well, what organizing possibilities existed and were missed in that moment? Cause that was like the key moment, right?
1: I don't, I don't see, I don't know. I mean, I'm just skeptical of Kyrie cause I'm a Warriors fan, but,
2: uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs>
1: Kyrie's
0: the vice president of the union.
1: Yeah, but he's
0: just like famously has said uh, like outlandish stuff over there. Yeah, years I was going to
2: and... say, he's mostly speaking for himself, right, in that moment. Yeah, yeah
0: I think. No, no, I don't think so because, okay. okay, so it wasn't just Kyrie. It was Dwight Howard also said, right. I don't know what we're doing. Dwight Howard is playing. Avery Bradley, who's also on the Lakers, decided not to play. Okay. But he well, Wasn't that for health he reasons? He said it was because he had just had a kid, but I think that part of it was that he thought that bubble was bullshit. Okay. You know? Um, so there, were players, the there oh. were players who were, uh, who were, who were echoing what Kyrie said, but there weren't a lot of them, yeah. you know, and Patrick Beverly, who's like on the Clippers summed it up the <laughs> best right? just like, We're just going to do whatever LeBron says, yeah. you wow. know, and that's, that's the power that LeBron has. And LeBron has earned that power, right? Like he is, he yeah. is the most famous player. He's been the most famous player. He's made all these guys a ton of money because the league has become more popular while he's been playing. And, uh, you know, like I like LeBron. I think LeBron is like, generally, I think he's like probably a good person, you know, and that he, I think he does more good than harm, but there is a way in which he manipulates the entire narrative around everything to be about him. And the reason he does that is because he can, because all these reporters just do it anyway, you know? And so I was, like, the entire time I was just talking, like, this was happening, I was just making bets with all my friends who are, you know, working around the NBA who, not the ones who are reporters now, but, you know, people who I know, and and we're just, like, betting on everything that would happen, Uh, you know, in the next three days. Every single thing was right, you know? And and it's not because I'm some, like, huge NBA insider. It's just that if you have a tiny bit of insight into how this stuff works, you can see all the moves, like, five, five moves ahead. And I just think all that just kind of I don't know. I just think it kind of fucked it, you know? Like, I think it made it really difficult once it became like, people don't know what's going on. There's this huge drama going on that everybody's entertained by any, like otherwise. And then the inevitability that they're, of course they were going to play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think people were excited by the idea that maybe they wouldn't play. Uh,
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And yeah, I guess it'll be curious to see if it just ends or if they're like non people, not in professional sports who like see this as an opportunity to do something like, yeah. that, like the scholar strike. But I kind of like my attitude towards the scholar strike is kind of like LeBron's attitude towards the Bucks, which
0: is <laughs> <laughs> like, you're like, you're like, I'm the best, I'm the best historian <laughs> out here. <laughs> I'm willing to risk you, it all. You, you peasants are like, you know, hurting <laughs> running my, running my thing. Which Wait, is- what's what? What's what's your perspective on it? How is it like LeBron? Well,
1: according to LeBron's, um, you know, uh, biographers that LeBron just, he was willing to do it, but he just wanted to know what the plan was. And as long as, uh, you know, if the demands were concrete and how do we get back to playing, et cetera. And I, I just kind of think like with the scholar strike, you could call it a teaching or something else, but the words, I guess I'm curious why the word strike is being used. And I wonder if that's because there aren't like, they're not going to go on strike. Like a like a real like labor strike, in demand and like uh, with uh, and have like an indefinite strike where they ask for something concrete. Uh, so in in lieu of that, they would use the word strike in this sense. Uh, I don't know. Like I, I feel like there's like a desire for strikes to happen, which is also what I think was happening with the media calling it a strike. And you know yeah. technically it was a strike, mm-hmm. but which but what was interesting was like the players themselves were refusing to call it a strike. Um, and they yeah. insisted on not calling it a strike, and they insisted. Because collect a collective bargaining agreement, it says they can't strike. Yeah, I was going
2: to yeah. say they okay. banned all work stoppages in there. Maybe they so were maybe, so maybe
1: otherwise. that was the reason why um, boycott was used. But yeah. also maybe it's referring
2: like to the 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 concept of a secondary boycott, you know, under labor, which is basically when you're trying to get something from someone who is in your employer. So in that sense, if it was something broader, but I don't think that's actually what they meant. I think they were going for a sort of, yeah, consumerist vocabulary.
0: Yeah. Have you been to Montgomery, Alabama?
2: No, what a pivot. Where are we going? There, Where are we going? Well, I went
0: there and I saw, you know, they have, the, they have a museum dedicated to the bus boy cars, yeah. right? When yeah. you go to that museum and you walk through it, it's an inspiring, it, it really is a truly inspiring place and you get this sense of how much planning had to go into the yes. Montgomery Boys, Like how many, how many people had to be hired as drivers to drive people back and forth from work, you know? Absolutely. How long they were planning to go from right. the very beginning. Like how much infrastructure existed. Yeah. And that sort of stuff is not necessary. I have two points with this. The first is that it's not necessary for the NBA players to just not play, right? They could just not play. Yeah and they can like they're all rich right like, like not all of them are rich but the vast majority of them are there was
1: talk of rich. they're
0: yeah. serious about it they can the the this is something that Kyrie did which is that Kyrie gave 1.5 million dollars of his own money for any WNBA player who wanted to sit out the season for whatever reason as a mutual aid type of thing right mm-hmm. And so the wealthy players who have more money than they'll ever be able to spend in their lifetimes could actually help out the poor, you know, the players who don't have as much money. And
2: shows how poorly that WNBA is pay, play, paid.
0: But They get like $60,000 a year. Yeah. They
1: lose money in the WNBA.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So like um, like that, That that's my first point, which is that mm-hmm. it doesn't actually require that much. Right, not in this situation. Second, The second question I had, which relates to Portland is that, do you think that through these protests that that type of in- infrastructure is being built? Like, because I look at it, I look at Portland, they're like, oh, they have these like, they have these medics. They have like, you know, riot ribs, which was like the sort yeah. of party place that was at all these places. And it seems like they are building infrastructure in some sort of way. But like, could it be used in some sort of prolonged moment of dissent with a clear demand, Right which I think in Portland they would argue, and I think maybe I, I'm persuaded by their argument, which is that that's what we're doing, right? We're protesting every single night until they defund the police, right? Yeah, right. Do you think that that type of infrastructure exists and that type of national organizing exists to do something like that? Like, Let's say the NBA has inspired tons of people to like strike for large, long periods of time. Right. What occurs to me is that like labor is too weak right now to actually undergo any of it at any level right like andy like it seems like you're saying at the academy like it's not going to happen because people are, there's too much precarity in my industry in journalism like it's laughable you know like <laughs> there's no way anyone could could afford to do it and there's no there's there's not enough infrastructure to help people like i, I don't know tammy this is a question for you really like do you think that, <laughs> that type of infrastructure exists?
2: I think so. To take the Portland example, I feel like you're asking a question kind of similar to what we asked during Occupy, which is, is this like a prefigurative politics, right, for something bigger or a kind of buildup yeah. mechanism? I think it can be in certain community settings because you could imagine, um, you know, certain of these kind of Antifa or, you know, gutter punk, black block, you know, using communities like potentially building organizations that lasted such that, let's say there was like a teacher strike in Portland, they would come out, they would have infrastructure to help support that. They would be the community arm of like a labor stoppage. On the larger question of unionism, I mean, I guess this is kind of where maybe I disagreed a little bit with your guys' analysis around the NBA as like a kind of extremely symbolic, extremely important, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of labor pool. Like, To me, I think the labor story of the last decade is really teachers. Yeah. I think that is the population that has been like the herald for so much of labor organizing in this country and and also not, and in the way that we're using the terms like general strike to mean like a strike that everyone can participate in because they see, you know, something in it for them. Like that is what teachers have molded for us, like starting most recently with the Chicago teacher Strike in 2012 and then into the 18 and 19, like their thing has been, like, this thing called, like, bargaining for the common good, right? Like, we're trying to do, like, a social justice unionism. Like, I think that exists. I think we're continuing to build that right now. Like, you know, it's weak. Like, we have, obviously, under 10% unionism in this country, you know, union density, but... I would look to that. I would look to like the big public sector unions and, you know. Yeah,
1: no, I wasn't, I wasn't, my piece, I wasn't celebrating like the NBA or sports, right? I was actually saying like, it's kind of weird.
2: Yeah, no. like
1: that the richest or the, this like small minority group within the country gets, I mean, I might just be like selectively like what I read, but I feel like I don't read a lot of stuff about like labor analysis in mainstream media. Obviously in the left uh, leftist media or leftist analysis or like in the academy, you will you will read a lot of that stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: the way that it seems to me like when I just like read like the New York <laughs> New York Times or just like the, any sort of mm-hmm. mainstream media, uh, sports gets politicized for labor issues uh, mm-hmm. in addition to like obviously the real the real labor issues, right? but <laughs> it does seem to like occupy this part of our brain. And I think it is because maybe just because of how nakedly public it is. Like everyone knows everyone's salaries, and there's talk of like, yeah. and, and, the, and there's the racial element where yeah. there's, there is like open analogies, famously but, calling like football players and basketball players are like new slavery or new Jim Crow, right? right?
0: But there's also like hundreds of reporters covering the league, right? Yeah. And everything in the league, as opposed to like hundreds, there's not hundreds of reporters. <laughs> Covering teachers. Yeah. So that's part of it. But yeah, Andy, I agree with you. I think it's because it's so public and because the like of the negotiations nature. are huge and fans feel some incentive because they're just like, Oh, well, what if it means that we can't afford to play pay these players or whatever? Yeah. And then they take it personally because mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, well, this person's getting paid twenty-four million dollars. Why are they complaining? It's like, you know, it's a whole thing yeah. that ties into a lot of different you know, pathological things, like, you know. And, you um, know,
1: I think it's also true, like, when we are kids and we fantasize about playing sports, part of the narrative is, like, the fantasy of, like, getting, being successful and getting paid for it and having a chip on your shoulder when you don't get recognized for it. Uh, that kind of pivots into, like, our own careers and thinking hmm. about, like, oh, I'm, like, you know, I, I want to be, <laughs> you know, we're just joking yeah, about this. shape. it's
0: just like, aspirational. Yeah, like, for sure. Uh,
1: but, like, we don't fantasize about that with any other occupation no no definitely not right sports kind of has that fantastical yeah and perhaps it's bad right perhaps it's like it displaces our attention on the things that really matter like our own individual like everyday struggles but i do think there's something to that where uh which which was kind of my rationalization in my head for like why are why are these people projecting these like leftist fantasies onto these players that yeah didn't yeah
2: i mean i think in that way it's kind of mirrors like some of the like the writers guild and other hollywood strikes and actions you know this both kind of like parallel entertainment fantasy universes but i don't know i think actually i feel like the teacher strikes got a lot of press and for sure
0: how sympathetic is that i I, like i flew to oklahoma city for 10 straight days cover the teacher strike you know and if it was like one of those things where if I was going somewhere then it meant that other people were coming
2: because
0: it it wasn't like I wasn't like it wasn't like my beat or anything like that so
1: the way is the way it's covered it's often um, I might be wrong but I have memories of you know the cover just kind of sneering like why
0: don't these teachers do their job
2: Yeah, so I think that's changed since 2012
0: that's definitely changed the oklahoma and the arizona and the west and the west virginia had had widespread and arizona
2: and then colorado then la like
0: yeah but
2: yeah i mean i totally i think like your metaphorical your analysis of like the metaphors of sports and like are just that's totally right and that's all of that stuff that we project on like people who are literally competitors in a bubble like yeah totally crazy you know
0: yeah yeah well, that's what this is what I mean. It's like there's two things. The first is that I don't think that player the players are particularly as woke as the, you know, population wants them to be. Yeah. Right. Like that the that the people who fantasize about these things want them to be. Uh same thing as the coaches, right? Like the NBA fans basically just want to live their politics right. through their consumer choice. Pop a vision NBA. Card, yeah. Yeah, And so the NBA has people saying like, kind of like cool social justice things are just like, this matters. You're like, it doesn't fucking matter. You know, like, like these, these, these places are still owned by Betsy DeVos, you know? <laughs> and like, that's like, their decisions are still run by a commissioner who works for De- Betsy DeVos. Like, it doesn't matter what the fuck they say. It doesn't matter. They put Black Lives Matter on the court. Like, yeah. you know, that's the actual power structure now. The place where I do think it matters, and I think that you know, uh, is that I do think that one thing that happens is that you can't really judge it by its immediate effects. Like, did it yeah. did the sure. players strike have immediate effects? Of course not. You know, it was like like they they're doing less than the NFL is doing. Like the Baltimore Ravens like called out Mitch McConnell and called for an end to qualified immunity. You know, the NBA basically just said, "We must fight systemic racism." Yeah. <laughs> after the fucking strike, you know. <laughs> so like, like you know, like this this whole thing where like the people this is one of my pet peeves where everyone's just like the NBA is so woke, man. Like the and the NFL is a bunch of backs, you know, like uh, like knuckle dragging, like okay. Neanderthals. Like the NFL is ahead of the NBA at this point in a lot of this stuff, hmm. and so like. um but I do think that what happens for people watching this stuff is that they the it did expand what they think is possible, yeah. not just for the NBA but also for their own lives. And I think that yeah. that's like a huge thing. And I think that George Hill and Sterling Brown in the Bucs deserve all the credit in the world for doing that because I was stunned, you know, that they didn't play. Yeah, I was just like they're not fucking playing. It's like three minutes before they were not decided not to play. One of my editors emailed me and she was like, It looks like they're not going to play. And I wrote her back and I was like, They're going to fucking play. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then they didn't play it. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I never thought that was gonna happen. I always thought they were just gonna play. Yeah, you know, like too. maybe they would like yeah. take a longer knee or something like that. <laughs> but like I just thought they were gonna play. <laughs> the longest so, knee you've ever had you've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. But like, you know, and my cynicism over this is because I've been an NBA fan my entire life, you yeah. know, and I've seen I've seen stuff like, you know, like the Donald Sterling thing where they flip their jerseys inside out. And in my, in those instances, I always feel bad for the players because it's like, what the yeah. fuck are they supposed to do? These are yeah. dudes who have been playing basketball since they're five years old, yeah. you know, their entire lives are basketball. They're so young, you know, yeah. you're asking this person to think like Huey fucking Newton or something like that, you know, right, like right. there's a person who like makes millions of dollars and has been a professional athlete since they're 19 years old or 20 years old, right? Like their lives are much different than the lives yeah. of like the people who are paid to think about these things or paid to act on these things or, you know, act on these things out of their own volition. And uh I don't know. And so I do understand the excitement in that sense. Yeah. Like I understand why people are like, holy shit, they actually did it. You know? Yeah. But they
2: and keep I, I don't doing think it more. I, they have so much leverage. They have so much, you know, they so many resources to fall back on. Like I don't know. I have higher expectations for these people. There
1: there was a there was talk that in ninety nine they had a lockout and that a lot of people were not prepared for that uh and like they ran out, ran out of money quickly mm. and that was like a lesson they learned for 2011 they had another lockout so you know i mean who 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 knows if this is actually building up towards anything but there is yeah there is a there is a precedent for them to like be unprepared and then better prepared I see. Uh, my thing with a-
0: them is that they should all start their own league and this has always been my idea since the 2011 lockout <clears throat> Excuse me, which is that the players should just start their own league and that they should stop dealing with these owners, you know, and yeah. that they should find rich people like Larry Ellison, who's always wanted to be an NBA owner, and they should get them <laughs> to the bankroll that stuff. Because guess what? If LeBron James and Kevin Durant are playing for like another league right. and the Boston Celtics are playing the Los Angeles Lakers and it's a bunch of scrubs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not watching the Celtics <laughs> versus Lakers. Are you kidding? Like the NBA more than any other sport is built around the the, the the work of the star players. Yeah. You know, like, that's the entire value of the product. I mean, you're talking about the ABA,
1: basically. The experiment yeah, in the I'm, 70s.
0: I'm just talking about they should just not play in the NBA anymore. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, they should create some sort of barnstorming league at the beginning. They should sign their own television deals. You know, like, do you really think that, like, ESPN and Turner are going to go you know, watch like five white scrubs who went to like Butler university. <laughs> there's, play like five- more, there's so many <laughs> players out there. They were but just yeah, five dudes who should be in Europe. And, in, and and then the other league is like, you know, all the good NBA players in like a 10 team league. Like, yeah. Of course show that, you know, and they're going to pay whatever they can to, to broadcast that. And they can even get creative about the ways that they use streaming platforms and stuff like that. (laughs) That would be a real player empowerment thing, you know? But until then, I think it's very difficult because, you know, in the end, you have like all the players have one vote and Betsy DeVos has another vote, you know? And the players can say, like, all the owners say the nice woke things, including the Houston Rockets. But the owner of the Houston Rockets is Tillman Fertita, who's like goes and like hangs out with Trump all the time. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah, why are there
2: so many of those?
0: Those are rich people. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I was going to ask you guys to me, the most important labor question that this prompted last week was the NCAA. Hmm.
3: And,
2: you know, to me, that's like, I don't, again, not a sports expert, but read a lot <laughs> of you know, stuff about labor and sports. And um, that just seems like the most exploited pool. And I've been telling you guys, you know, without yeah. getting into too much detail about a student who's struggling because of NCAA rules, the cancellations of COVID and all of this stuff. And it's, just witnessing that exploitation up close is just has been really yeah, sobering for me. And, um, what are we going to do? We got to fix the system. And, you know, shouldn't this activism at the professional level trickle down to the most exploited athletes?
1: It has, uh, it's, it's changed a lot in the last decade. They've, has the not I don't know. That. I don't know. I don't know if it's superficial, but there's well, been talk that it's inevitable that the students will be able to get paid. Um, it's not it by their, uh, I don't know. There's like court cases. Weren't, wasn't there like uh, some decision that NCAA said like Yeah,
0: you, but that took 12 years yes. for Ed o, for like Ed and Charles, for Ed O'Bannon to get his yeah. like NCAA likeness Charles case
2: yeah. put yeah.
0: through. Yeah, 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 yeah that took 12 years. I don't think it's inevitable at all. I think at the beginning of this with coronavirus, a lot of players talked about unionizing. Right? Yeah, a lot of right. And uh, and I think a, a lot of the players also. We're talking about like, you know, the way that their coaches were dealing with this sort of thing mm-hmm. and that how they were going to take a stand. And, you know, they, for a lot, most of that has dissipated. Yeah. And the reason why it's dissipated is because it's for the same reason as the NBA players. It's just like, uh, these are young guys who have played football their entire lives. Yeah. And uh, for most of them, they're only going to be able to play football for two more years in their entire life. It's what they love to do. yeah It's why they went to the college that they went to. You know, very few of them will make the NFL. So, like, the incentive of, like, oh, well, you know, like, the, the NFL is not going to draft me if I don't play this year. Like, maybe that's true for, like, some tiny percentage of them. But the most of them just want to play. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And... um But
2: also, like, so much of the architecture of their life is based on that decision. Like, they won't have tuition. They won't have housing. Right. Like, they won't be... Oh, able yeah, to- for sure. I mean, that stuff is just so freaking crazy. And it's
0: also how they, like, identify as yeah. like human beings, you sure. know? And so... Yeah. To basically say, I am going to sacrifice all this, knowing that it won't benefit me in my you know in my yeah. career, but it'll benefit people down the line, is a very difficult thing to do. When we're talking about two to two to four years, sure. is the is like the time that they're in college, you know. So for that reason, it's I think it's very difficult. But also because the same forces that crush NBA players also crush college football sure. players, and the college the college uh, not just football players, but the college athletes have right. like. Like point zero 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 one percent of the power that the NBA players have, you know. So, yeah. like, what are they really going to do? It's difficult.
1: And the, um, in the NBA, there's like talk of circumventing college basketball altogether, hmm. with uh, domestic either go overseas and just get paid when you're 18, uh-huh. or go straight to the NBA. That's going to happen in two years, right? But you know that only affects so many players who are actually good enough to I make see. the NBA.
0: Yeah, it, it's like four to four to ten a year, right? But you it's know? like
1: it's so. a and like just like casual conversations with every college athlete I've talked to, like everyone uh-huh. is on the same side at this point, right? That it's it's exploitation, it's unfair. But you know, um, and like professional athletes openly talk about how it's unfair and how they mm-hmm. felt exploited, exploited their entire time in college. So,
2: so is this their version of the tenure, non tenure? <laughs>
1: <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, precisely because they have so much to lose, and. Yeah. You know the NCAA. It doesn't matter to them if they, you know, kick out this player or that player, or they blackball this or that team. You know, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. The the last thing I'll say about all this, uh, and I want to know what your reactions are, is that I think that you know the. I wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books, and it was a review of Scoop Jackson's book. Yeah. Um, and I admire Scoop a lot, and. But I do disagree with him about this one thing, which is that, you know, he sees great revolutionary potential in sports, right? Mm -hmm. And he will point to Kaepernick, and he will point to Jesse Owens, he'll point to Ali, and he'll say that those prove that sports has revolutionary power. I think that sports has the potential to create mass-marketed moments and images of dissent, right? I don't think it necessarily has revolutionary potential in itself. No. Like, I don't think that's, and I think that those two need to be separated out. Yeah. And I think individual athletes can make big emotional moments, and they have. Like, yeah. the Kaepernick thing was really important, and he had, took a lot of courage. He gave up his career for it, and I don't think anyone can say anything bad about him after that, right, yeah. despite what he's done since then. And that image of him kneeling is going to be taught, you know, our kids yeah. are going to learn about it. Um, I don't think that the sports itself will ever change, you know, yeah. like, cause there's too much money, there's too much power going on. There's too much people who want to watch it continue and for it to continue the way it is right now, it needs, it like almost necessarily has to be structured in the way that it is. And that means that kids will go to Alabama to play Alabama football yeah. and they're not going to get paid, yeah. you know? <laughs> and I don't think that that's going to change.
1: I mean, I think that could change. Don't you think the system could accommodate that paying college players? No. Why? Bank it
0: would bankrupt because them because the only pe- like the the people who you and I know think it's all bad, and everybody who's an Alabama fan and an Alabama booster thinks that the kids shouldn't be paid.
1: I do. Th- I mean, I do think public opinion has changed. I guess that's what I was saying. But
0: I don't. I think public opinion has changed. Like amongst like people who you know we interact with, I don't okay. think that public opinion has changed. Amongst like the car dealers of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, <laughs> who are like actually giving money to Alabama
1: pro- program, <laughs> we just lost our lost our
0: Tuscaloosa list. Yeah, no, You're but I, I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't, I don't, know. I don't think it'll change. I
1: think, well, I do think it's that. I think the system itself, the system, what's, what I was trying to say in my piece, was just, I think what sports does, it ideologically tries to rescue capitalism from itself. Mm-hmm. Like because we know capitalism, you know, like we wokesters, we know capitalism is messed <laughs> up, right? But sports presents the best possible version of capitalism, right? Meritocratic competition, etc. So I think...
0: Yeah, but and also that is has a lot of black people in it. And so it is this illusion that it also is right, like... Right, exactly. You know, that exactly. It's like socially just... Right.
1: And it goes like, by, yeah. it's, it's symbolic in a lot of ways, right? Like at the yeah. same time, we have a black president and we have all these amazing black athletes, like inequality gets worse for, you know, black and groups black in the U S yeah, exactly. Uh, so I don't, it's almost like asking it to go against its DNA to hmm. make it, to ask it to play a progressive social role. And so for someone like Kaepernick and let's say like, you know, the Bucks, it's like, it, it served the role to create a celebrity. And then it's up to that celebrity to basically commit, so sort of like to be a traitor. I guess we go back to being traitors, right? To be like a traitor to the profession, to be a traitor to what they've been trained to do and what got them to the celebrity status in the first place, which is exactly what you know Kaepernick did. And so in that sense, yeah, it does have a it does um, successfully create celebrities. But then I guess the question comes back to like, are celebrities a good model for politics? Uh, because you know what we're talking about with like LeBron and all these players who are invested in continuing. The system—it's—it um, that might be there's like tension there, right? Like, especially with like a sport like basketball where that celebrates the individual, um, mm-hmm. it's hard to well, right. It's hard to what, think about.
0: What did they? What did they like? Take up unpopular stances, right? Even within their own demographic, right? Like, I think that would be something different. Um, so that's what Kaepernick did, right? right? In a sport where everybody salutes a flag, he didn't, right. I think if LeBron James came out and said there should be mandatory school busing, right? And that school choice should go away in large cities <laughs> and that all schools should be force integrated, that that would I think that would mean something. Except that, you that he
2: know? has his own quasi charter chain, right? <laughs> what but about yeah. Abdul Raouf?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Remember Abdul Raouf?
0: You know? Yeah, Abdul Raouf was run out of the league, yeah. right? Like so like that's that's that's
1: there's a player in the nineties who refused to stand for the uh, national anthem.
0: Mm-hmm. This is stuff that, like, he's also, like, black Muslim, which made it even, you know, more unpopular at the time for him. But, like, I think that, like, what ends up happening is, like, that these players are not really confronting power in any sort of way when they're going out and they're giving statements before and after games, right, within their own profession. They're not doing things that are unpopular because the league has sanctioned and approved all of this. Yeah. And the potential for the box strike was to say – or the box, whatever you want to call it, was to just say, actually, we are not doing this anymore. And that's why people got excited about it, because it felt like, oh, if this thing falls, yeah, right? Like, if this, like, sort of woke apparat- messaging apparatus can fail, then maybe we're dealing with something real. Yeah. But I still have some hope that, while I don't think sports will change, that I do think that some of this stuff will start to feel dead and inert, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that it'll lose some of its power
1: yeah so I, think, I guess the question is does, do you think the average fan fell for all the coverage that the lebron you know the lebron state media over this weekend
0: i do think that the average fan is just happy that basketball is back yeah
2: okay. probably yeah i was like curious I about that section of your saj and also the end because you talk about the essential workers that you yes. know surround the yeah. apparatus of the celebrity part of the basketball labor and that suggests i mean that pointed to something i'm i've always been curious about is there's nothing stopping the nba players union from being a solidarity vehicle for a sta- say stadium workers
0: yeah
2: you yeah, know yeah but, but they, they
0: never they never will
2: <laughs> i yeah i hope you're yeah. wrong right because that that is that is something that's like very proximate and very easy and it's something that's been you know that has happened in okay of course the money isn't the same but in you know, in different sorts of settings, like you can on university campuses where faculty unions have supported service workers, more promising is the Hollywood equivalent where there has been solidarity across the Hollywood unions, you know, so that the writers who are paid like bajillions of dollars for their scripts can actually practice with IATSI or, you know, other unions, mm-hmm. craft unions. So I don't know. To me, like that, that. Is really interesting. I'd be curious what somebody like Dave Zirin has to say about this. Like what yeah. are the sorts of like no? Well,
0: individual players did do that at the beginning of coronavirus. So some right. individual players gave money to, but the union didn't. Yeah. And like so individual players did yeah. like some money. The so stadium workers
1: are not unionized. Else. Are they? I would be surprised. Uh, I, I assume <laughs> they would. They would be? Okay.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, is there anything else on this topic?
2: No, good job. I enjoyed your guys' stories and um, I think it's <laughs> fun to have our worlds collide.
0: It's a bit of a bro-fest, but...
2: No, I liked the um, labor stuff too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week. Sometimes we do it twice a week. You can always reach us at Twitter. You can DM us. It's TTSGpod. Or you can write us an email. We've been getting your emails and we appreciate them all that is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com um, until next week uh, thanks guys uh, do we have another do we have an interview this week lined up yet Yeah. We do Sand what button. is it have you done it ah
2: that's gonna be tomorrow okay, okay. Or Wednesday so yeah
0: Tammy later this week <laughs> we'll have an interview about you know some of the horrible things that are happening in San Quentin how it shows real failure of the state and also, you know, what lives count, which uh, is really the lesson we've all learned, I think, during coronavirus. And so watch out for that. Uh, I'll talk to you guys soon.